Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora everyone and welcome along to the show. I'm really glad you could join me as this week we get to speak with Kyla Coben. Now, Kyla had been on the list of people that I've been wanting to interview right from the beginning when I started Seeds Podcast. So it was a real pleasure to sit down with her and hear about her life story. We talk about a lot of different topics. And because she's been involved in so many interesting things, we have many rabbit holes that we go down. I can guarantee that you're going to enjoy this interview. And if you do, you might want to check out some of the more than 188 in the back catalog as well. The aim here is to build up a catalog of inspiring people and find out about their journeys, what has led them to do what they do today. And there's a whole bunch more information at theseeds.nz. And if you look at the episode before this one, there's a 10-minute version where I pulled out some excerpts from our conversation, so you might want to check that one out as well. Now let's get into this conversation with Kyla. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Kyla Coben, who's the co-founder of BOMA Global and the founder of BOMA New Zealand and the CEO there. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. For the last few years, you've been on my list of people that I would love to have on the podcast. Yay, I'm so glad I made it. <laughs> yeah, you f- yep, I finally got you on. The thing about Seeds is what we do is we're trying to have deeper conversations. I want to step back from um, the currency and go back through your past and find out a bit about where you're from. And then I think that will shape into a conversation about what you're doing today. Cool. So um, to start off, the, the opening question is a simple one. Um, thinking back to your childhood, how would you describe where you were from? I mean, if someone asks me where I'm from, my answer is New York City. That's mm-hmm. where I was born and bred. Mm-hmm. Um, being from New York City definitely shapes I speak for myself, shaped my identity in a way that um, maybe being from somewhere else wouldn't necessarily like being a New Yorker was a thing for me that maybe mm-hmm. being a, you know, Michigander wasn't as, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't want yeah. to speak on behalf of Michiganders. <laughs> um, yeah. So born and bred in New York City, Upper West Side, Manhattan. Um, so is that an identity that you, you sense even as a young child, like five, six years old, sort of this is my my place or when did you feel that sense of identity I mean I don't I definitely wouldn't have been able to articulate it that way at five or six years old but you know I had some experiences as a young kid Um, when I was four I was the subject of an attempted kidnapping um, by a random guy in the street this was not not because we had any money or anything it was just a random guy in the street uh, (laughs) picked me up and tried to run with me and um, got caught by the cops and strangers on the street helped out it was Right. Pretty formative do experience. Do you remember that moment? You or? know, it's hard to say. I've I've retold the story so many times. It's yeah. hard to know whether I actually remember it or just remember the retelling of it. It was a real kind of movie moment. The guy picked me up and started running. I started screaming. Uh, my mother started running after us. And the guy came to a screeching halt. And I looked up and there was a crowd of people at the end of the block barring his way, like, wow. you know, ready to fight him. And he turned across the street and there was another crowd of people across the street, like blocking his way. And it was really this kind of, you know, like the scene in, in, in Spider-Man when the, when they start throwing stuff at the Staten Island, uh, not the Staten Island, the, 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 um, the, the gondola thing. And they're like, you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. And right. that's kind of what it felt like. Yeah. We're unified here. We're going yeah. to take back our child. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow. <laughs> um, so that happened. And then you know, there were other moments, you know, I was I was um, walking around the neighborhood by myself from the age of maybe six or seven. And so from a very early age, I had this sense of like, you know, it's a tough world, and I'm a tough kid. And, you know, we'll be able to, um, and I can kind of cope in any throw me in any situation, and I'll be able to cope. So, mm. so yeah, does that come, yeah. do you think, from the size of the city? Or what is it that gives it that character? I don't know that it's, I mean, part of it is the city, but also part of it is my upbringing. Mm. You know, my mom was a very, an extraordinarily liberal parent. And I don't mean that in the political sense. I mean that in the sense of giving us liberation as kids to be able to do what we wanted. She um, really gave us an incredible amount of trust and freedom to be able to go and explore and learn, which on reflection, as I became an adult, I grew to appreciate so much more how difficult that would have been. Mm. My mother grew up in in Europe during World War II. Uh, you know, as a small child, she had bombs falling all around her. She basically um, 
grew up in a way that it would be easy for her to not trust the world. Mm. Uh, I had a sister who died before I was born. She was four years old. She died in a fire. Mm. Um, And again, you know, you could understand growing up in a war, having a child die at the age of four, it would have been totally forgivable for my mother to have wrapped me in bubble wrap and never let me out of the house. Mm. And instead, you know, even after attempted kidnapping at at the age of four, she just constantly, you know, pushed me, pushed me, not in a bad way, in a very loving way, but constantly pushed me to go out and explore. So it may be uh, as much or more a, a question of, you know, my 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 upbringing by my parents uh, as it was a question of the city itself. Mm. So what was part of her journey or how did she end up in New York? Yeah, so she was born in uh, in Holland in 1941, spent the first five years of her life in Holland. Right. Uh, they moved to Hungary for a couple of years during the war. My grandfather was a diplomat. Um, and then they escaped uh, uh, Europe, and we uh, were Jewish. My family's Jewish. Mm. Um, and so they escaped and went to Argentina. I don't know how familiar you are with you know global movements post-World War II, but basically all the Jews escaped and all the Nazis escaped, and everybody reunited in Buenos Aires. Right. <laughs> and so um, she was raised in Mar del Plata, which is a city uh, about four hours' drive from Buenos Aires. Right. It's Moved. interesting because I do have a slight connection there because I used to live in Chile, mm-hmm. in southern Chile, mm-hmm. um, a place called Puerto Montt. Mm. And people, there was a lot of people there who had come over after the war. Mm. And you'd look at them and they were blue eyes and, you know, blonde hair and they spoke obviously Spanish. Yeah. Um, and you wouldn't make the connection and, oh, okay, this was, you know, after the war. Uh, influx yeah. of people had come. Yeah, yeah. Um, Argentina got a lot of European influx post-World yeah. War II. And then uh, she wanted to come to America with her um, then-boyfriend, Eduardo, and um, she didn't have a passport because they had fled Europe. Right. And she couldn't get a passport because it to get a Dutch passport, you had to be in Holland, and to get an Argentine passport, you had to be born in Argentina. And so right. she was kind of caught... Uh, and so she ended up marrying her her boyfriend so she could get a passport as the wife of an Argentine that, that gave her mm. the ability to travel. They moved to America together, and you know her dream was to move to America and be a movie star and win an Oscar. Uh, it didn't quite work out that way, but um, she did other extraordinary things with her life instead. Yeah, and I think there's the cooking school, right? Yeah. It, yeah. Was that something that she got involved with quite early on, or...? or? Yeah, so my mother founded the oldest natural foods cooking school in America, uh, the Natural Gourmet Institute, in 1977, before health food or health supportive cooking was in any way a thing. Mm. She was a she was an incredible pioneer. She wrote many books. Uh, she wrote uh, Food and Healing, uh, the Book of Hold Meals. Uh, she was she was considered the Julia Childs of natural foods cooking. Mm. And I remember she won an award once from. Avon, the cosmetics company, and the Small Business Administration, they had this national award called the Women of Enterprise Award. Mm. Uh, It was given to five women across the the country for overcoming hurdles to become a success in small business. She won this award, and the award presentation was at the Waldorf Astoria in New York in this fancy ballroom with 1,300 people. It was very glamorous. Mm. And they made a movie about her life. And the movie was like a movie, like a, you know, growing up in the war with bombs and, you know, like all the hardship. And it was very, you know, dramatic and intense. And then she got up and she had the uh, the teleprompters, you know, the the, the see-through uh, teleprompters right, that make yeah. it look like you're not actually reading. And it was just, I mean, it was this really, and my sister and I are sitting there going, it's just our mom. Like, what? what this is What's crazy. <laughs> and, um, and she got up and she said, you know, when I was a little girl growing up in Argentina, it was my dream to come to America and be a movie star and win an Oscar. And she said, I never imagined I would win the Avon Oscar for starring in the soap opera of my life. <laughs> and the whole room erupted, and it was fantastic. So so the cooking school, we've licensed all of our curriculum to another cooking school. So mm-hmm. we were the Natural Gourmet Institute. We licensed our material to another cooking school called the Institute for Culinary Education. So we now have the Natural Gourmet Center at ICE, mm-hmm. which is continuing the legacy. Um, we're not directly teaching students anymore, but it's been whatever it is, 43 years now, and and the legacy continues. So, yeah, yeah, that's amazing. So it sounds like she was a pretty influential figure in your life. 
Yeah, both my parents were very influential. My, my mom had was the my parents split up when I was two, and my mom had us during the school year, so mm-hmm. um, she she figures more prominently in this story. But both my parents were very influential in my life. And the Argentina connection that that continued through your life as well, did it? Or yeah, absolutely. In fact, just uh, two days ago, I got a chance to catch up with my oldest friend in the world who lives in Spain, but who is from Argentina originally. Mm. You know, I, we started going there when I was little, uh, when, from when I was about 12, 13, uh, we went regularly every year, uh, after I graduated, uh, university for a while, I had a company that was distributing large format digital printing supplies in Argentina. So all the raw materials to make billboards and bus graphics and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so I was going back and forth every two or three months. So I definitely consider Argentina my third home country. Like if, you know, we talk about the concept of Tsuranga YY, I'm I'm, I'm lucky enough to have three, which is um, America, Argentina, and and New Zealand. Yeah. So it sounds like it was a childhood that was very internationally focused, you know, because of your mother's background and origins and and the, the travel and things. Is that... I mean, <laughs> it was a childhood of adventure, of just a lot of adventure. And that could be adventure in terms of travel. My father was an actor. He had all sorts of, you know, crazy friends. Like he collected people just who were un- unbelievable, um, fascinating people. He-, he had friends who were, you know, they had the elephant act in the Big Apple Circus, five generations of like elephant trainers and performers. And so, you know, as a kid, if the Big Apple Circus was running, we'd I'd waltz up and go backstage and hang out with the elephant folks. And, um, you know, he was friends with Eartha Kitt, who was um, Catwoman. And, um, you know, we I remember as a kid climbing in her fig tree and eating figs off her fig tree. Like it was just, <laughs> I mean, we just got to do so many random, ridiculous things that um, I think what my what my parent my parents gave me so many things and they're they're they've, they're both passed away now but um uh, and my stepfather who was also extraordinary in his own right they gave me so many things but the the two biggest things one is both my mother and father were kind of always at the front of the room you know my dad was an actor he was on stage like the limelight my mother was a teacher effectively with their cooking school mm-hmm. and i definitely inherited that i like to be at the front of the room um i like to be on stage i like to to be able to be you know sharing uh what i've got with people mm-hmm. uh and then the other thing is just this kind of general fascination with the world mm-hmm. um and that's both both my parents as well as my stepfather who was an award-winning journalist for the associated press and who investigated you know really profound stories like you know internment camps in america or people who were living surviving with hiv aids when people were not surviving with hiv aids you know he'd investigate people who, would, who were living long lives like that mm-hmm. and so he did really incredible investigative journalism mm-hmm. And I'm just, uh, you know, that's it's it's not the travel's one piece of it, but I'm just really grateful for all of that kind of breadth of exposure that they gave mm. me. It sounds like they were curious people, <laughs> and they were interested in the world, and that's something that you then have inherited. Because I think when I look at what you're doing today, there's been a, a wide variety of things that you've been involved in. You know, we're, we're going to get into it, but you know, with TEDx and um, BOMA and Singularity University and different things, it all sort of points back in my mind when I think of you, it's as somebody who's quite curious and, and wants to understand and wants to explain. And yeah, I think that kind of matches the, the background that you're describing. It's, it's absolutely true. I'm yeah. just relentlessly curious about people, about what's happening, about why we do what we do. And, mm. um, and also just, I've, I, I also just love how cool people are. We were talking about this the other day. What was it? What, what came up? Oh, it was some random thing that people were really into. Um, and it reminded me of this guy I had met at an airport once. He was like a baggage handler, but he was really into robot battles. He would build robots to fight against other robots. Right. And, uh, you know, it's just this like constant reminder that there are like worlds upon worlds all around us. People who are like, we're, oh, it was um, Renaissance, like, like reenacting Renaissance times mm. that, you know, there's this whole community of people that... All they do is re or medieval. Re, all they do is reenact medieval times, and you know they're just worlds upon worlds all around us. And it, I, I just feel like if you don't think that's interesting, you kind of have no soul. Like, how yeah. can how can you not find it fascinating that somebody wants to spend their 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 life, you know, reliving what it was like 500 years ago? Or I don't. know. I'm terrible at history. I don't know. How yeah, was. yeah. No, I get you though. And my mother, she taught me one really key thing, um, which is that everyone has some story. Yeah. And I, the thing I love about this podcast, because I'm interviewing different people every week, 
and everybody has something that's interesting. And what she said to me is, if you don't think someone's interesting, you haven't asked the right question yet, because everybody's got that story. Yeah, that's that's the kind of the sense that I get from you as well. Yeah, and and when you think about from that perspective of everyone having their story. It also ties to our ability, I think, to have compassion for each other. Mm. Um, one of my favorite quotes is um, from, uh, I think it's Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who said, if we knew the secret history of our enemies, we would find there enough sorrow and suffering to dispel all animosity. Mm. And I come back to that again and again, because I, f- I, I genuinely believe everyone is doing the best they can, given the information they have available to them, which includes everything they've ever learned about the world and life and success and failure and strength and weakness and all those things, mm. as well as whatever information they happen to have in that moment. And so coming at it from that perspective of, you know, everybody has their story. And if you really understand their story, you might, you still might not agree with them because you have your own information and your own perspective, mm. but you can maybe find compassion or forgiveness for where someone else is coming from. Mm. So let's come back to your story. Mm -hmm. We've talked a little bit about your childhood and what that was like growing up. Did you know an area or uh, have a subject that you most enjoyed, say, in high school? What were you you like then? So in high school, I was really good at math. Maths, I guess I'm in New Zealand. I should say maths. <laughs> uh, in America, we say math. Uh, I loved math. Like I, I still to this day love math. I, I find it fun. Yeah. And um, uh, what do you love about math? I just it's problem solving. <laughs> Is it the it's precision puzzles. Of it or the <laughs> it's just puzzles, and there's an answer, and it's just you know satisfying yeah. when it resolves, and it's just yeah, it's it's fun. And I um, was in this uh, you know advanced math group. We did calculus, and we had this awesome math teacher. Dawn Park, who was from Jamaica, and she was just had the best attitude and made it such a delight. And because we all loved math, like everyone who's in that group really loved it. So it was a really great environment to learn in. And she would say things like, in Jamaica, when the teacher walks into the room, the children stand and salute. (laughs) We all have to stand and salute. So yeah, so math was really great. Um, one, one thing that came out in high school. So when I was a junior in high school, so, um, 16 years old, um, I went and spent a semester, uh, six months in Italy, uh, and went to school there. I started learning other languages when I was 14. This, this, my, the summer that I turned 15, I spent, uh, some time in France and, and started learning French. I, then I went to Italy and learned some Italian and then my Spanish came later, which is ironic, because of mm. course, I've got the Argentine connection. And so I, I learned when I was in high school that I re- had a real facility with languages, but I didn't learn languages in high school. When when I went to France, I could basically say it's raining, it's snowing, the pen is on the table. And mm. that was pretty much it. <laughs> and but going there and being immersed, I was able to pick it up and, mm. and became ultimately fluent in it. So in terms of like my high school subjects, maths was where it was at. But right. uh, but during those years, I also learned I had a facility for languages. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And I love the maths bit. One of the um, episodes I did was with a maths teacher. Mm. And what she said is boil everything down and everywhere you look, it's it's mathematics. Yeah. You know, from the classic, the snowflake to music, you yeah. know, like it's all, it's all intertwined. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's great. And also it's like, it, it feels a little bit like a, like a superpower or like you can, you can spot magic tricks that other people can't spot. So mm. like I have a weekly subscription, um, I get the Ubi box delivered and I mention Ubi specifically because they're awesome and you should, everyone should sign up for them mm. um, out of our own backyard.co.nz, Ubi. Uh, we get our, pro, we get a regular, you know, mix of veggies that come along um, and then we add to it always bananas and eggs and bread and stuff. Mm. And uh, yesterday I was going in to see what I wanted to add for the week and they had a thing that was like, basic essential additions box and it was the things we always order additional bread eggs bananas and i was like oh sweet how much is it 2090 okay how much is the bread this how much is the bananas this how much is the eggs this it's exactly the same price why would i order this special box and i felt a little bit like proud that i had done the maths and then also a little bit disappointed because i wanted it to be like either below or above so i could feel like i was winning or that i could switch to the to the box right so you've got your lens of of mathematics yeah exactly, <laughs> on everything. Exactly. and you mentioned the languages as well i'm just curious for that side of things um what do you think that opens up within you or other people that you know who are bilingual or trilingual you know in terms of the way that you look at the world I have my own theories here, so that's why I ask. 
I mean, first it opens up the opportunity for connection, right? Like I can um, connect with people who are native Spanish speakers in a way that I couldn't necessarily. Um, if I did not speak that language, I can go to France and feel very comfortable navigating mm. Paris or arguing with my Uber driver, <laughs> even though, um, you know, in a way that I would not, I, you know, that I would feel limited if I didn't have that language ability. Mm. Um, but the other thing is, uh, I think different languages, you know, activate different parts of our brains. I'm not a neuroscientist here, but I know, for example, that um, my Spanish when I'm speaking Spanish, it's like a more poetic way of framing concepts mm. than it is when I'm speaking English. Interesting, yeah. Um, and I am um, dedicating my attention now to improving my breo, mm. um, which I'm, I would say I'm at very early stages of. Mm. And I'm finding that super fascinating because that is not a language that you can do literal translations for, right? You don't take your sentence, English sentence with your subject, verb, object, you know, same layout, and then just translate each one of those words and end up with the same layout in Tereo Māori. It's, mm. it's a totally different concept. I'll get a sentence in Tereo Māori, and when I dig into it, I'm going, oh, whoa, so that word means this, this, and this. And because it's put here, that's why it encompasses this whole concept. And so it's really a very different way of thinking because our language is basically a representation for the way that we think. Um, so I think being able to dig into languages in that way allows us, again, to understand each other in ways that we couldn't if we didn't yeah. have that. Yeah, no, I agree. My father always, he speaks Spanish, and he always says he's much funnier in Spanish. Yeah, you <laughs> um, should hear me curse in Spanish. All right. <laughs> yeah, I lived in Japan for five years, so I spoke, I, I can speak Japanese. And I think for me, that changed my own way of looking at the world. Because, mm -hmm. for example, you know, the way that they talk about hierarchy mm. and the way that, you know, you would speak we would speak at this level, but then if I was talking to a child, it would be different verb tenses in different ways. And yeah, yeah it's, it's fascinating subject how how the words you know express the culture and the way of being of a particular group of people. Mm -hmm. mm. So we're here in New Zealand. <laughs> how did you you know just take us through the next couple of years? Maybe like was New Zealand ever on your horizon? Growing up, it sounds like Europe and Argentina were there, but how did you end up coming here? Yeah, so I'm, I mean, I, I've never been much for kind of five-year plans. Mm. My career has been very, I would say, Forrest Gumpy. Like, oh, this new opportunity has come up. That sounds interesting. I'll try that for a while and see mm. what happens. Um, and so how I got to New Zealand, um, I got to New Zealand because of my wonderful now ex-husband, mm -hmm. um, whom I met uh, in America, and we got together when I was living in Colorado, um, and spent a year and a half together in, in America, and then he said, I'm going back to New Zealand, come home with me, and <laughs> I said yes, and so here we are. Um, we split up uh, eight years ago, but we're still good friends, and I will be forever grateful to him for bringing me here. So, mm. um, Michael O'Day, if you're listening, thank you. <laughs> um, and you ended up in Christchurch? or Yeah, yeah, that? we came straight to Christchurch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, that was 2005, and um, we split up in 2012. Um, and 2012 was, um, was really a, a, a big turning point for me. That was the year. So, so my marriage ended. Um, the, I resigned from a company that I'd been, uh, involved with for a number of years. My mother was back in New York and she wasn't, her health wasn't very good. Mm. Um, and our cooking school, <laughs> this cooking school that my mother founded of which I'm chair, um, also needed some additional attention. And mm. so that was a real moment when kind of the things that had been tying me to Aotearoa, New Zealand had been severed mm. and there were lots of things calling me back to New York, back to America. Mm. Um, and that was the moment that I made the conscious decision that, no, this is where I want to be. This is absolutely my Tūrangawaiwai. This is this is home for me. I don't want to go back to, to mm. New York. So, uh, so I became a citizen, and um, here I am. Yeah. And it's around that time that you were involved in a number of different initiatives as well. Like I'm thinking of Ministry of Awesome, for example, and, and TEDx as well. Can you just talk us through what was your thinking there of being involved in some of those new initiatives that we're starting? Yeah, so TEDx, we started TEDx Christchurch in 2010. Right. 
And basically what happened was about a year earlier, I had set a goal. I just said, I'm not very good at five-year goals. So this is like a rare instance of me going, I don't know, I probably read a book about BHAGs or something. I was like, I need to set a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal. My goal was to speak at TED. And this was before the TEDx program existed. Mm-hmm. And actually, that goal was the suggestion of Michael, my, my, my now ex-husband. So it was a great goal. I jumped right on it. This is fantastic. And um, my friend Helena uh, Parsons, who might be known to some of your listeners, she said, well, what are you going to speak about? And I said, I have no idea. She's OK, well, I'll draw you a map. And she sent me the map. And the map was a single PowerPoint slide. And in the bottom left-hand corner, it said Kyla 2009. And then in the top right corner, it had the TED logo. And then coming off of Kyla 2009, there were two kind of squiggly arrows sort of vaguely pointing up and to the right. And then it was just like blank. <laughs> like, Here's your map. I was like, okay, that's awesome. I printed it out. I put it on the wall. And I was like, well, I don't know what I would speak about, but I know that people who speak at TED uh, have two things in common. One is that they're world-class public speakers. And two is that they're changing the world for the better. Mm. And so I just decided I would take every chance I had to become a better public speaker Mm -hmm. or to change the world for the better or both and just started using those as kind of guiding principles for Mm -hmm. how I was living my life, Mm -hmm. Um, which turned out to be really good guiding principles, like setting aside any interest in speaking at TED. Shortly after that was when TED began the TEDx program. Um, Lara Stein, who's my current business partner, launched the the TEDx program at TED. I remember talking to a a woman who was working for me at the time – Jess, and we were discussing whether we should apply for a license to do TEDx Christchurch. And she was so wise because uh, I said, Well, you know, we could apply for this license, but my goal is to speak at TED, not to, you know, run a TEDx event. Mm. And she said, She knew me really well. She said, How would you feel if somebody else did it? And I was like, How dare they <laughs> <laughs> steal my event? So we applied immediately. And, you know, that was, uh, that was 10 years ago. And um, today, uh, one of our talks from last year's event, Dr. Lucy Hone, is uh, featured on the TED homepage, was just mm-hmm. launched today. And uh, Lucy's uh, quoted in the New York Times today, again, as a result of speaking at TEDx Christchurch last year. And so that's been an incredible platform to be to be part of. Can I come back to that bit that you were mentioning about, you know, finding your purpose or what it was that you wanted to do? Do you remember that as a moment? Because I'm, I'm really curious about your bio. Mm-hmm. At the very end, I love this part, Mm -hmm. and you know what I'm about to say. It says, her purpose in life is to be an uplifting presence. Mm. How did you come up with that? Was that tied in with that that kind of moments? Yeah, I don't remember when I came up with that, um, but I've been very attached to it for for, since I came up with it. (laughs) Um, And really where it comes from is that I'm very explicit about not wanting to, quote unquote, do air quotes, but you're listeners can't see them mm. um i'm very explicit about not wanting to help people uh, you know who who is anyone to help anyone else um and also it's very kind of presumptuous to assume i don't want to inspire people i don't mm. want to like assume that anyone's going to interpret what i do in any particular way or do what i do in order to generate some kind of action for somebody else because mm. i'm very clear that we cannot control the behavior of a single other person on this planet. And so if we're measuring our success or failure by that, then we're, I think we're doing it wrong. Mm. That choice of wording is very intentional. And really where it's coming from is I want to live my life in such a way that I feel proud of who I am every day. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I can, you know, we, we run the Brene Brown Dare to Lead program. And mm-hmm. one of the things I say on that program all the time when we do the values section mm-hmm. is you know, when it all falls apart, when the marriage falls apart and your business crumbles and, you know, you're turfed out of your flat or, you know, when everything is like falling apart, if you can look yourself in the mirror and say, I lived according to these two values, I behaved according to these two values, Mm -hmm. will you be content with who you are and how you showed up? Mm -hmm. And that's really what's behind that. To be an uplifting presence is like, I want to be showing up to my fullest, to my best self, to become a better person, to to be proud of how I'm engaging with pe- the people around me, with my loved ones, with the world around me. Mm. And not because I think it's going to help anybody or because anybody else is going to change, but because I want to be I want to be modeling how I think it is best to be in the world. Mm. So it's an inner standard that you're reaching for for yourself rather Correct. than the outworking that likely will come, but it's more about who you are and what your value is. 
and, and, and really the purpose, you know, like if you're doing it for the outward thing, then already it's, you're going to be find yourself on the back foot yeah. as opposed to, I want to behave with integrity because I think it's better to behave with integrity, not because then I'll get more customers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So in terms of the, because uh, I'd love to talk a little bit about Brene Brown and mm-hmm. some of the work that you've done there, but for you and that idea of values, because I've read Dare to Lead and there's a whole section there about values. Have you reframed how you think of your values as a result of that? Or what would be your values? Yeah, so um, when we do that exercise, we challenge people, you know, there's a, in the book and in the, in the the on the program, there's a massive list of values as well as space to add your own in case the ones that you like aren't on there. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the exercise we have people do is go through and I ask people to, to go through and put a tick next to their top 10 and then to go back through and put a second tick next to their top five of their 10 and then to go through those five and circle their top two. Yeah. But the, the, the exercise is basically to get it down to two. And it's really important to get it down to two because when you look at the list, you kind of feel like, well, I agree with all of that. Mm. Of course, beauty. Of course, love. Of course, nature. Of course, you know, integrity. Of course, faith. Of course, whatever. And, um, uh, and what happens is if you have more than two, then they start to lose their power. And really what we're looking for is what are the values that um, we say you would take into the arena with you. And what we mean, what we mean by that is if you're going to have a difficult conversation with someone you love and respect, mm. what values do you want to bring into that space? Mm. Um, what are the values that can serve as a filter for decision making um, when you're torn between you know two either equally compelling or equally untenable options? Mm. Um, what are the values that can be the seminal values for other ones. So if you're trying to decide between um, love and family, for example, you might say, well, I'm going to choose love because I want to show up with love to my family and also to my friends and also in my workspace. And also, you know, that defines how I want to show up. Mm-hmm. So so what what are the ones that can, can kind of give birth to the others? So um, when I did that exercise, uh, the values I came out with were courage and integrity. Mm-hmm. Um, we tell people all the time that, you know, you, because it's a difficult, it's a difficult exercise, you know, it requires quite a lot of introspection. Mm -hmm. And I always tell people, you look, don't feel like these are carved in stone. Mm -hmm. You know, if you reflect on it for a few weeks and you decide, actually, I thought it was freedom, but it's adventure and, you know, whatever, like that it's, it's such a personal thing. I have stuck with courage and integrity. I feel very strongly about them. And that's, Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and yeah, it's really become a part of who I am. Yeah, no, that's great. So it come, it, it's a, it's a framing, isn't it? So you can come back to those words and those that picture that this is what I stand for. So I think I've heard you speak before, and you mentioned that Brene Brown was somebody you you'd gone and met and did the coursework with her. It, from memory, you said there's some people that you meet them and you realize that it's a little bit of a show, and that they're not they don't actually have the depth that it first appears, whereas with her, you really sense that there's substance there. Do you want to just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we're all human, right? (laughs) And uh, so they say you should never meet your heroes, um, Mm. because if you have heroes and you meet them, you're, you're like, oh, right, they get grumpy at their partner, or they, you know. So because I've met a fair few people who um, are heroes to some, and seen the the totally normal human flaws that that people have Mm. you know i typically don't go anywhere as an unmitigated fangirl Mm. probably if i met obama i would struggle to not be (laughs) an unmitigated fangirl but generally speaking um you know i go in just assuming that these people are human beings just like you and i are and that they're going to be doing their best and sometimes they'll be good at it and sometimes they 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 won't be as good at it and you know that's the way things go Mm -hmm. and i also have met a fair few people who have written a book where there's a kind of singular concept in the book that they've sort of leveraged. There's a great article a few years ago. I think it was in the Atlantic or the New Yorker. It was one of those like long form Mm -hmm. publications about the difference between the thought leader and the public intellectual. And the thought leader is like the person who has like a simple concept, like 10,000 hours or whatever. And then they basically cherry pick data to fulfill that concept. And they go around and charge six figures to give talks about that single concept. And it's like, oh, that's my thing. I'm the 10,000 hours guy. Mm. Um, No offense to Malcolm Gladwell. (laughs) And um, uh, whereas the public intellectual has a lot more rigor, but is harder to sell, right? Because the public intellectual is like, oh, there's nuance there. Mm. And there's, you know, it's not always true. And there's this other 
another example of whatever. And so, you know, it's it's just a lot more complex. Mm. Um, but that's harder to package and, and swallow. Mm. And so so when I went to go do the training with Brene, I was kind of open to to which one she would be, you know, open to to um, to how much uh, depth there would be behind mm. the um, the stuff I'd read, mm. and I was incredibly pleasantly surprised. Uh, you know, her work is robust. The research is vigorous. There is a lot of data behind what they do. Mm. The methodology is robust, and so because of that, it generates profound insights that are applicable to so many situations and I those three days were among the most powerful I've ever spent and I just you know every you know 15 seconds I was kind of underlying something circling and I'm not a note taker at all but I was just I was just like oh that's so good oh that's so true oh that yep that's me oh that's my kids oh that's my partner oh that's you know the yeah. team like just it was just so powerful and having brought it back that was a little over a year ago, a year ago March and now having facilitated it for over 800 people and you know applying it every day with my team with my family with my um, colleagues it just it gets better and better the more I apply it. So it's mm. it feels like an incredible privilege to be able to do that work. Mm, that's great. Can we just talk about one word which comes up a lot in her work, and I'm mm-hmm. sure it comes up in the course, which is vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And I'm really curious about that word because when you look at uh, you know business books of the past few decades, if you go back a little while, they were mainly about how much wealth can you create? You know, how much money can you extract? How can we uh, optimize the systems and, you know, and yet now I'm seeing a trend or, you know, there's definitely more openness to this idea of actually we need to know who we are. We need to be vulnerable and, and talking with each other. Um, and that certainly comes through in the work that she's been doing. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So so the, the material that I trained in is the Dare to Lead curriculum, which is her work specifically as it applies to the organizational context. Mm-hmm. And it's basically material to train people on the four skill sets of courage, because we have this, often we have this idea that cur- that people are either courageous or they're not. Mm. They're either brave or they're not. And you don't know exactly what it is, but you know it when you see it, and it's something that can't really be taught. And what the research shows is that it's actually not that in any way, that courage is a collection of skill sets that are teachable, measurable, and observable, mm. that they are, um, this, these skill sets are based on empirical research that, you know, when you look at someone being courageous, you can, you can draw a straight line to the four skill sets that, that, that we teach. Mm. And the first and most important one is uh, our ability to rumble with vulnerability, our ability to get comfortable being vulnerable. Mm. Um, the single most accurate measure of courage is our willingness to lean into vulnerability. It's probably useful to come back to the definition there because um, I know for a lot of people, we, we've got this myth that vulnerability is weakness, right? That, oh, I can't be vulnerable because then people will know that I'm weak. Um, but the actual definition of vulnerability is risk uncertainty and emotional exposure. I guess I would invite your listeners to do a little thought experiment, which is, you know, think of a time that you've seen someone doing something courageous. Could be somebody you know, somebody you don't know, something recent, something from a long time ago. Like, think of somebody doing something courageous. Mm -hmm. And then ask yourself, what role did vulnerability play in that moment? Mm -hmm. Was that person taking a risk? Were they facing uncertainty? Were they opening themselves up to emotional exposure? Mm. And what you realize very quickly is that you cannot have courage without vulnerability because without vulnerability, the thing you're doing doesn't require courage. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're actually inseparable, inextricably linked. And so when, when you ask if vulnerability is one of the core, yeah, it's, it's at the heart of all of it. Yep. <laughs> it's the number one thing. Well done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did get something from the book. No, I, I knew that. <laughs> I just wanted to hear from your perspective, having, having trained in it and, and worked with her. And I think it's fascinating as well. You know, you think about creativity, like there's a level of vulnerability of putting your art out there. Totally. Which is, will anybody like this painting, this poem, this book, this whatever? Um, this graphic and, design, this website, mm-hmm. this board report, mm. right? Like, I mean, we, we think about vulnerability as like, oh, that's the, you know, the, the I'm scared thing, whatever. But we experience this every day in, in our professional lives, every single day, mm. right? Oh, I've got this idea for our new strategy. I've got this concept for whatever. I've got this analysis that I've done. Do you like it? Like, we're constantly 
having to put ourselves on the line mm. for what we think is right or what we think is important and opening ourselves up to the possibility of being judged for those things. And so the, the, the more we're willing to lean into that, the more our paths will be defined by courage. Mm. Well, what we can do in the show notes is put links and stuff to different resources. So we'll, we've talked about a bunch of things, so we'll put those in. But I would love to talk about BOMA. So I remember a few years ago when we were having a conversation about it because it, it was still being formed. You were having meetings overseas, I think, and coming back to New Zealand. And um, people know me as the host of the podcast, but I'm actually a lawyer. <laughs> so um, we were talking about legal structures and different things like that. But can you just lead us up to setting it up? And what was the reasons? What are you hoping to achieve with it? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, thank you for your support in those <laughs> early days. Um, you were incredibly helpful, and, and, and I'm grateful for it. BOMA is a global network of local partners. Um, and so you mentioned in the opening that I'm a co-founder of BOMA Global and the founder and CEO of BOMA New Zealand. So there are four of us who founded the global entity. Uh, that's myself, my kind of counterpart in Germany. So um, the guy who ran TEDx Berlin and who brought Singularity University to Germany. Um, we haven't talked much about Singularity University on this thing, but of course I brought that to New Zealand and to Australia. Uh, my counterpart in France. And then our fourth partner is based in New York. Uh, she's a lady called Lara Stein. Um, she created the entire TEDx program at TED and then left TED to join Singularity University and lead their global expansion. And so when we launched, uh, you know, I had BOMA New Zealand, my French partner's BOMA France, my German partner's BOMA Germany. Lara's job has been to grow the global network. And so we've now added partners in China, Canada, Poland, Brazil, and a few other places. Mm-hmm. And the purpose with BOMA is for us to be more intentional and intelligent about the future. Um, and really where it comes from is this kind of myth that we have that the future is this like singular, fixed, static thing that we can predict and that is out there waiting to happen to us, as opposed to understanding that um, the future is created by us, by the you know aggregation of all the choices that we make collectively every mm-hmm. single day. Um, so our job you know, this used to be just the job of the futurists, but I would say it's kind of incumbent on all of us to be futurists now. Our job is to go, well, what is the range of possible futures we might get? Which ones of these are desirable? And what can we do to make the desirable ones more likely and the undesirable ones less likely? Mm-hmm. Like that's really where it's at. And so with BOMA, we do, um, the, the primary thing that we do is training. Um, often corporate training, but it, it can be training for community leaders as well. What we like to say is our training sits at the nexus of what you need to know and who you need to be. So the what you need to know stuff is things like better understanding the nature of exponential technology, better understanding the nature of global trends that are convening and converging to create this kind of highly VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, um, complex, and ambiguous and then the who you need to be is, you know, the courage side, the, the Brene Brown side, the value mm. side, the ethics side, mm. uh, because those the combination of those two things is, I think, what's going to create powerful leaders for the future. Mm. So just thinking about BOMA then um, and the practical, the practical outcome of that desire to do that, what sort of shape is that taking for you? What sort of events are you running or what sort of things are, is, are going on? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a portfolio of training programs that includes the Dare to Lead program, which is really for a broad definition of leader. Uh, The definition we use is anyone who sees the potential in people and processes and has the courage to work to bring about that potential. So that includes, you know, could include teachers, it could include not-for-profit leaders, definitely includes corporate executives. Mm -hmm. Um, We also have a transformational executives program that is specifically for people with influence over team, budget, culture, and strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we have a transformational directors program which is for people who have governance responsibilities. Um, In addition to those training programs that we run, we do quite a lot of custom work with organizations. And then we also run events. We ran last year an event called Grow, which was about the future of food and fiber in Aotearoa. We had about 600 people come along to that. Mm -hmm. Um, That was supported by MPI uh, as well as ASB Rural. Mm And, um, you know, we don't, we're not an event management company. We wouldn't, you know, if Spark called us to do their sales conference or whatever, we wouldn't, we wouldn't take that kind of a job. Um, but we do events, again, where we're focused on this more intentional and intelligent future. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, can I just say a thank you to you as well? Because you came on an Impact Unconference about a month and a half ago that I was facilitating. Um, so I see that you're out and involved in a number of different areas as well, um, getting these messages out. 
You know, I feel so lucky to live first in Ototahi Christchurch and second in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Mm. It, it, there are so many extraordinary people doing wonderful things here, and you're absolutely one of them. And so to the degree that I can be part of that community, championing it, supporting it, showing up, being, you know, active, actively participating, it's just a total privilege to do that. I agree with you, because I came back to Christchurch about four and a half years ago now. I'd been overseas um, doing international lawyer things. And but when I came back, it was partly because of the people, the culture. I actually do believe that there is something distinctive and unique here because like you, I'm traveling quite a bit to, you know, other wonderful cities in New Zealand, but Auckland and Wellington, they don't seem to have the same vibe or the same, you know, the same um, approach. And I think partly it's burst out of the hardship that's that that we've gone through through earthquakes, shootings, fires, you know, all of that. I, I couldn't speak to what it's like in Auckland and Wellington. I, you know, I've never, I've never lived in those places, but um, I just look around and 100% post the earthquakes, mm-hmm. um, just saw the extraordinary um, surge of creativity and innovation that we had. And there's this idea in leadership that, that I love, that is that leadership is voluntary that it is something that comes from within, that you cannot wait for people to say, you're going to be a leader now, because by definition, if you've done that, you've followed. Mm. And that was, I think, what we really saw after the earthquakes was people looking around going, what needs fixing? How can I have some kind of positive impact? How can I put my unique skills and talents to use to you know, to be an uplifting presence. It's like a city full of people being uplifting presences. And so mm. I just, yeah, I feel so lucky to live here. Mm. Uh, a lot of people do have that sense that they're just getting on and living in their values, not for the reward of getting a position or a title, but just getting on with it and, and having, you know, because of the experiences, just this is the way we operate. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, well, that's really good. One of the things I'm just to finish off really just thinking of the future. Mm-hmm. How do you keep fresh in terms of what's going on around the world and global trends? And, and what do you think is coming next in terms of where you're headed? You know, BOMA's in its early stages. So mm-hmm. hopefully that's what's coming next. Yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned. But I do think that that approach that we're taking at BOMA mm-hmm. is really what's needed in the world. When I was involved with Singularity University, you know, I spent a lot of time helping organizations understand the nature of exponential technological change mm-hmm. um, and the impact and the disruption on them. And what I saw over and over again was that the barriers to acting on that information were not technological. They were human. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, 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 a school of thought that says that exponential technologies are going to create a world of abundance and therefore solve for healthcare, education, climate, etc. We don't have any evidence that that's the case. You know, we still have huge healthcare challenges around the world, huge climate, you know, climate, we're, we're woefully negligent in terms of our response to climate change. Mm-hmm. We have huge cultural problems, obviously, you know, I, I know this podcast is not about current political affairs, but um, you and I both being from the U.S. originally, you know, massive cultural problems mm-hmm. uh, unfolding there in a way that we also can't ignore here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, in terms of our own colonialist past and mm-hmm. um, the present of racism that we have, systemic racism that we have here today. Mm-hmm. And so to me, the exciting thing, I don't know if exciting is the right word, but the place that is of most value right now to be playing is at the convergence of these vectors of change, mm-hmm. right? Is to be understanding, yes, what the impact of technology is, but also then how does that relate to people's ability to vote, for example? Mm-hmm. How does that relate to um, the way that we um, include uh, the elderly in our decision-making? How does that equate to our ability to do participatory budgeting processes? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the kind of combination of these things, I think, is where um, we can maybe start to get at some really meaty ideas that could have um, a much greater impact on society and on the world. Mm. No, that's really good. It, it's about having a, a balanced view of the future, isn't it? Not not a naive one that all the problems will be solved easily. <laughs> yeah, definitely our problems will not be solved easily. I keep, I've, uh, during the course of the um, 
pandemic, I keep coming back to a concept over and over again, which is the Stockdale paradox, which comes from Admiral Jim Stockdale, uh, who's in the U.S. military, and he was shot down over Vietnam during the war, mm-hmm. uh, and he was taken prisoner. He spent seven and a half years in the Hanoi Hilton prisoner of war camp, um, underwent horrific torture, had to do horrific things in order to survive. And when he got out, he was asked, you know, what what was it that allowed you to survive when so many didn't? Um, you know, what was the difference between you, the people who survived, and the people who didn't? And more specifically, did the people the people who didn't survive, what did they have in common? Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, that's easy. The ones who didn't survive were the optimists. They were the ones who said, oh, we'll be home by Christmas. And Christmas would come and Christmas would go. Mm. And they'd say, we'll be home by Easter. And Easter would come and Easter would go. And they'd say, we'll be home by Thanksgiving, November. And that would come and go. And he said, it would be Christmas again. And they would die of a broken heart. Mm. He said, the ones who made it through were the ones who never confused total faith that they would prevail in the end, which is something you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, no matter how difficult they may be. So this became known as the Stockdale paradox, that combination of total faith and, you know, looking at the brutal facts. You know, I come back to that over and over again, and it's called a paradox, but I don't think it's a paradox in any way. I think the only way that we can prevail in the end is if we are willing to look at what we are actually dealing with in the present in order to be able to overcome it. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the conversation, the corridor that's happening right now about looking at the truth of systemic racism in New Zealand, the truth of our colonialist past, the truth of you know, how um, we've marginalized communities right here, the truth of what an armed police trial means for uh, Maori communities, for Pacific communities here in, in Aotearoa. Um, you know, we if we don't have the discipline to look at those things, we will never get through to the more beautiful, more just world that we all desire. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Well, it's been great having you on the podcast. I really appreciate your time and just to hear your background because um, we've known each other quite a while, but it was nice to hear about your childhood, you know, attempted kidnapping, <laughs> but just to hear about the influence of your parents as well. And it's, mm-hmm. I always find it interesting to think about generations, you know, and what do we take from our parents and what have we learned from them, you know? Um, and in your case, I can see that there's parts that have come and are now outworking, but then also just to better understand your own approach to life, because you're somebody who I see running in a similar direction to me, Mm. doing different things, different ways, but I'm really encouraged by hearing about your story and and what it is that you're prioritizing and how you're doing it. So I just want to say thank you so much for sharing that with the listeners. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kyla. I know for me there were many highlights, but I especially enjoyed her sharing about her values and what drives her. If you enjoyed this, then you might want to check out some of the other interviews in the back catalog. Until next time.